Do you think seaweed is sexy? No? Perhaps this episode will change your mind. I speak with Rihanna from the Scottish Seaweed Industry Association about how seaweed is making a comeback. I hear about court cases with seaweed, the future uses of seaweed, such as making t-shirts and much more. At the end, you may even think about starting your own seaweed farm, perhaps. And we talk about that too, so you can find out more. Thanks so much for listening to Coastal Catch-Ups and I hope you enjoy this episode. It's all about marine and the coastal sea Aquatic life and everything in between So sit on there and take a seat Coastal Catch-Ups with a stampede Rihanna, thank you so much for coming on the Coastal Catch-Ups. How are you doing? Uh, thanks very much for having me. I'm, I'm doing great, thanks. Good, good. Um, I was wondering if you could start by giving myself and the listeners a brief overview of your career to date. Oh, sure. I mean, I won't go into detail about, you know, the various pubs that I've worked at or, or random jobs that I've taken, you know, being a baker at Waitrose, but um, I... With regards to seaweed anyway, I did my master's um, back over in Sweden uh, back in 2017. And that was on the history of um, environmental sciences. So I, I did mine focused on seaweed in, in the British Isles. And then uh, I came back to the UK, worked for Mara Seaweed for a bit, who are now Seaweed Enterprises. Uh, and then ended up starting up the Seaweed Academy um, at SAMS and now I'm the business development manager for the Scottish Seaweed Industry Association or the SSIA for short. Very good. So you said about skipping over your past careers but I did see you were a chef at one point. Yeah. I thought I'd make the link there between uh, the new seaweed industry and recipes I suppose in people uh is that did that ex is that experience came into play at all in your yeah actually it's funny so I I did do a bit of chefing when I was a student uh I ended up catering for student dinners um because in Sweden I don't know how much you know about the culture there but it's very focused around student dinners um there's a different one every single week uh, and so I ended up being a chef part-time and then I ran uh, the pubs over uh, over the summers uh, as well. So as the, the head chef at the pub over um, two consecutive summers. And yeah, a couple of times people did say, let's do a seaweed themed dinner and have a student dinner that's all about seaweed. And I said, well, that would be great, but you know, the seaweed isn't there. I can't go out and, you know, we weren't right next to the beach, so I couldn't go collect it and cook with it. And equally health and safety mm. then wouldn't have been carried out properly. So I'd have to buy it and, you know, seaweed at the moment is very niche. It's it's artisanal. Uh, if you're cooking with it, we we did have a, an event at Sam's uh, not long after I joined. So we did a launch of the Seaweed Academy, and I went to the local uh, university, well, actually you know, the college, so Argyle College, mm -hmm. and I asked them to put together a menu that was all about seaweed. And you know, the kids at first they went, "Oh, what? Why?" <laughs> what are we going to do with this um but then it ended up being a sort of you know gastronomical adventure they made carrageen and cheesecake they made 
dulls and haggis purses. They made these little uh, mussel plates with, with seaweed in them um, and shortbreads with seaweed. And it was just really exciting to see it. And by the end of it, they said this was a great challenge and, and they had a great time. So yeah, it, it's the ongoing difficulty of how do we actually get it in the Western diet? Because everyone thinks yeah. seaweed, they think sushi and, you know, there's more to it. Yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But so if we take a step at the very start of your seaweed journey, why why seaweed what is what is there anything in particular about it that's grabbed your fascination um could you share share about with us yeah so i really wanted to find something i think like a lot of people there's such a sense of despair at the moment in the world uh and you just want to find something that's actually doing good you know and uh, i was really focused on finding something um, that had this storyline that something that we used to take advantage of in the past and now actually we're finding that we can uh, use it in all sorts of different things. I originally actually wanted to do my research on bamboo because um, I lived in Southeast Asia and I remember seeing these giant buildings with bamboo structures instead of um, you know the iron cladding that you have now to get up the buildings. Mm -hmm. if all over China and Hong Kong uh, you just see bamboo with cable ties basically that's what holds up um, any sort of construction and then you saw bamboo was being used in food and clothing and all these other things and I thought well isn't this great this is a great project um, and I ended up going to the UN conference of parties so COP23 that was held in Bonn and I met this Swedish uh, scientist who would, had a seaweed farm and said forget about uh, bamboo seaweed's the future it's like whatever you think you can do with a product it's like seaweed can do it you want a food seaweed. you want a you know biostimulant seaweed you want a fabric seaweed it, it can do everything um and he convinced me that okay and i think like a lot of people who get into seaweed once you're in you're in <laughs> it's almost like a cult yeah <laughs> i i think uh a lot of people wouldn't realize i i think people listening that aren't aware of all the uses of seaweed, this will be news to them in terms of the range of uses for seaweed between products and then uh, medicinal uses and, and then food as well. Um, why why do you think it is, and especially suppose in our culture, why do you think it hasn't kind of came to the fore, like up to the surface yet? Why is it maybe hidden a bit in a cult? <laughs> I mean, it's, to be honest, this is the weird thing about it because it was so ingrained mm -hmm. at, at some point at various times throughout history. We've that that's the most interesting thing about this. The further you delve into the history of seaweed, the more you actually know uh, that that we have this relationship with it. So you know, we used to feed it to our animals in in winter. Um, we used to put it on our crops. So some people might know lazy bed farming, where you basically go um, up hills and and dig out troughs and, and essentially put seaweed um, in those uh, plots of land and then and then basically put your seeds on top and it gives them uh, lots of nutrients through through the seaweed so it's it's a great form of, of utilizing it um, and then you know during the first world war we used the the potash and we burnt seaweed on the beaches and we used that uh, for gunpowder in the first world war we also used it to make 
um, to bleach clothes, to make soap, to make glass, you know, all of these things that, that was really, really interesting. And then essentially what happened was um, the seaweed revolution, or the seaweed, the industrial revolution came and we stopped looking to the sea for all these things. We started mining it. Um, and then obviously looked more to agriculture to develop everything and, and lost all of our history and our relationship with the ocean and um, and seaweed and all, all its uses, you know. At one point, Glasgow was the iodine capital of the world. We had loads of uh, alginate factories around here that use seaweed and, you know, in the 80s, they, they all sort of died away as well. Um, and we're kind of reinvigorating that relationship now but it's really hard when we have a complete generation who have had no relationship with you whatsoever you might still find some people's grandparents who you know remember eating dulse back in the day or uh, lava bread in wales which is still quite uncommon to to actually eat on a day-to-day -day basis but yeah it definitely has been a shift and i imagine if maybe if you did a survey of students and where I am now in Belfast, like I'd say not many people would be aware of all this. But I was going to say as well, Rihanna, the when we organized this chat, um, I kind of looked into the seaweed history around where I am now in Strangford Lock. And there's a series of islands. And I think they're, there's old buildings, old stone buildings. They were used as kelp kilns and storage houses. And they're still on the islands. So the the landscape, like the evidence is still there in the landscape of the historical use of it, which I find quite interesting. Um, I don't know if it's somewhere up in Scotland. I'm sure it is. But uh, yeah, so it's just kind of like a reminder of where it came from, like the almost back in that 200 years ago when I suppose like people needed food and they needed to oh. grow grow ag uh, food product produce and fields and they needed to do it as best as possible so it's funny how just the shift it's kind of went from a, a need to just now uh well like you said it's kind of turned into you it's turning into uh don't know what i'm trying to say <laughs> i mean it's the seaweed revolution but it's a yeah, completely yeah different exactly it's kind of like relationship we have now yeah it, it, it's reinventing itself now yeah. now we know it, it for its you know medicinal properties and we know it for its nutritional properties and you know that's that stuff that maybe we didn't quite understand before but we we knew that if you had a cut on your leg you could wrap it in seaweed and it would heal it mm -hmm. maybe we didn't quite know why um you know I, I think when I delved into some of the literature it wasn't till the 1800s that people actually understood what iodine was um and how useful it was for us uh, and and you know I've, I've heard stories of in uh, New Zealand they used to chew on seaweed stipes um, when they were going along basically and, and in their boats and that that's one of the most interesting things I think is that the seaweed we used to eat uh, to give us you know vitamin C and, and other things like that so when we actually got scurvy on the boats um, the Norwegians and Scandinavians who used to go on vessels, they, they could go much further because they knew you could get the nutrients from the seaweed, mm -hmm. whereas a lot of our explorers uh, ended up dying from scurvy because they didn't understand that, that, that seaweed has the, the, you know, just above the water <laughs> where, where all the seaweed was that could have saved them. And it's crazy to me that, yeah, you just lose that uh, knowledge.
yeah, got just the seaweed floating on the water could have saved your life back in the day. Um, You mentioned about literature there and your thesis you did during your master's, was it? Um, Yeah, yeah. Can you, I I absolutely love the title of it. Do you want to share with the listeners the title of the, the thesis? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I yeah, I originally came up with this seaweed is sexy um, and it's about the consumption and utilisation of seaweed throughout British history uh, and its marketing journey. And when I first came up with that title, actually, the other people in my uh, graduating class said, you're not really going to call it that, are you? And my supervisor said, yes, you absolutely are. <laughs> so I kept it in there. I'm quite happy I did because I think it's a testament, really, um, to seaweed and what it represents now yeah and um, so in that in the in your research what did you conclude from it um during your studies i think well essentially that seaweed is sexy it's new it has all of these really great properties um that are just so useful uh for us in in modern day life um and most of which because of its sustainability really it's this it's lauded as the superfood. It can replace um, all sorts of products that we make out of uh, oil and, and petroleum. Um, so your plastics uh, and, and products like that. So it's really, really great that we have this thing that actually we can get excited about um, and can do so much more for us. I think I probably focused quite a lot on my thesis on it being used as a food. Um, and I think seaweed, for food is, is really great. Um, I eat seaweed every day, um, but I do use it as a seasoning, as just a small sprinkle to put in my food, just to you know, give myself a bit of a health boost. Uh, I you know, do work a little bit with it in its vegetable form, but it, but it is hard to understand it. It's, not, it's just not something that we have quite in the diet yet. Um, and I, I think maybe what I've realized between writing that thesis and now uh, is that it's a lot more difficult to get people into eating seaweed than uh, I had initially thought. And in the in your document, there's a lot of literature. Was that done on? Was there was there a tactic behind having all that literature in the research? Like it's it's not scientific, so it's kind of more the looking into the culture of it and going back in time and. Um, it's a bit more anecdotal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I felt like I got into a bit of a rabbit hole um, with it because you started to find, you know, reports from people who would manage certain areas um, of land and they would talk about, you know, kelp kilns and they'd talk about uh, how they used it or you'd find documents about um, someone found, you know, a rock of seaweed or had a certain area of the beach that had loads of seaweed in it and they would go to court. and, you know, in, in Anstruther, I remember seeing a court case around the, basically a rock that was filled with seaweed uh, and that somebody wanted it for four pounds or something. And it was just really, really interesting to find this and go, oh, wow. Right. So there was it was a really, really desirable um, product and, and this industry. Uh, and, you know, the hundred thousand people were employed in the Outer Hebrides. Um, the more I del- in, delved into that, actually, the more I found out maybe not all of them were getting paid so right. you know okay good good and bad in all industries um but yeah I just I just thought it was so 
interesting. So I tried to put as much sort of literature or, or anecdotal evidence as I could um, into that, that relationship and why people, and even quotes, I think, from poetry and stories, because it really does um, have this relationship. And actually, even if you look into Scots Gaelic, uh, the number of words that we have for seaweed, you know, when you talk about how, uh, you know, Inuits have 42 different words for snow, it's, it's, we have the same for, for seaweed um, in our foreign languages. And now it's pretty much just seaweed is the blanket term for all of the, the, the bountiful kind of different varieties of seaweed that you can find. So that was interesting. Yeah, I think I was reading earlier, it's like over 100 types of kelp seaweed different various variations yeah. like yeah ten thousand different types of seaweed all over the world yeah you know you've got green brown and red and the variety in them genetically a red seaweed and a green seaweed are more diverse than we are from a sponge you know from a sea sponge it's crazy uh, how diverse they are really on the genetic tree yeah but me just nice uh, to think about really yeah really. just makes you feel small <laughs> the and then you mentioned about hundred thousand people were employed in or maybe employed in the outer hebrides i didn't realize the scale of when, when was that when yeah so there was a there was a kelp boom between uh the kind of mid 1700s to the early 1800s so um around that time yeah especially lewis harris um, sky if you go out to any of those islands you'll, you'll find kelp kilns there still um, so it's really interesting actually that that, that history sort of remains and even even houses made out of seaweed uh, you had roofs made out of seaweed so some of those practices still go on mm -hmm. um, it's really interesting to see yeah yeah well it sounds like the research is really interesting um, but looking ahead then how do we make seaweed sexy like how do you, how can you entice people to to get on the to get on the train? Yeah, I think there's two there's two camps. Uh, I mean, if you live in the south of England, I feel like you're not going to think that seaweed's particularly sexy at the moment. There's uh, loads of stories about it being washed up on the beaches because we've got and and that's what's going to happen. Actually, it's a really interesting point about eutrophication. You've got a lot of sewage runoff at the moment going on in the south of England, which means that you're going to get these big um, seaweed and algae blooms uh, because there's an imbalance of nutrients in the water um, and actually th those kinds of things do contribute to to dead zones we've seen that in the Baltic Sea um, and now in the Sargasso Sea as well there's, there's uh, those giant seaweed blobs of sargassum that are moving into to Mexico and California and those kinds of areas of Florida sorry and those kinds of areas um, so I'm sure people in those areas would say, oh, it's definitely not sexy and it's not in that instance. But what we can do is we can, you know, grow it and harvest it in a sustainable way. If it's washing up on the beach, we, there are things that we can do with it. Um, and that, that's what's really exciting. So you can make uh, T-shirts out of seaweed. We've got people now making fibres and um, producing clothing, which reduces the amount of water by, by so much because the clothing industry is one of the biggest users of uh, water anywhere same thing with dyes you can now make uh, dyes out of seaweed um, and reduce the significantly reduce the water there as well uh, bioplastics that degrade in some cases less than six weeks so you can literally just put it in your compost or throw it on the ground and it'd be fine um, 
you know, I think it's it's such an exciting sector and every single day there's a different use for it. Recently I saw tampons as well uh, from Germany. Um, and, and it is something that people are getting really excited about. Um, but it's it's the hype, also the, the reality of it as well, because, uh, you know, with that hype, we then need regulations, we need money. It's, it's really, really hard to compete with plastic because plastic is so cheap and we're so used to it now. So how do we get rid of plastic and introduce something that's more expensive? Mm. Most people don't want to pay for that. Um, so yeah, and get it, getting it out there, the news helps a lot, I think, with every new development, um, there's, there's so much interest and intrigue uh, and people are starting to see that, yeah, it really is sexy. And I suppose it's like, like you say, some people will view it as maybe if various people um, with seaweed washing up on the beach, it's decomposing, smelly, you know, it's kind of changing people's perception. So instead of saying, well, this is a problem like why not take this stuff turn it into fertilizer for agriculture or something i don't know something it's kind of like changing that perspective is that fair to say yeah well exactly yeah you're, you're seeing now some some people are taking the, the sargassum uh and making it into building blocks like most of the other day so you know uh fortifying um or trying to replace cement or even fortifying cement uh, all of those things are really great because again cement is has a huge carbon output um so if we can take something and, and reduce carbon simultaneously well then that's great um equally uh if you use it in in animal feed and human food and you can't use the stuff that washes up on the beach for that because it won't, won't be food safe but the stuff that you grow or the, or the stuff that you um harvest hand harvest you can use that for for food and animal feed and significantly reduce maybe some of the ingredients that you're using um, in terms of their carbon output and then making the whole life cycle analysis that much better. And I think that's something that a lot of people are looking at right now. Um, there's a huge interest to reduce carbon everywhere. Uh, and so if we can do that with the help of seaweed with, with reduced carbon products, and that's great as well. Yeah. I was also reading about um, initiatives growing seaweed, taking it out to the sea where the water's steeper than a kilometer and burying it for carbon mitigation, which I, I re read it and the skeptic in me goes, who's paying for it? But um, have you heard of things like that? Uh, yeah, and I would be very, very skeptical about that. Um, I mean, ultimately, if you're growing it and then sinking it, the, the carbon that you're sequestering in growing it and then dumping it would be almost immediately undone by you know taking it out far enough if you think about how far you have to get to get to a, a, a thousand yeah. meters you have yeah, to right. drop it to yeah. a thousand meters you know and then how are you how are you dropping it as well yeah. um what the methods of it are you tying a stone to it because then that's more cement or if you're using mm. some kind of machinery to then take it down um you know so if it, if, if, if you're growing it yourself the, the root is definitely not sinking it. Um, yeah. it. It's just not worth it. And we don't know what effect it'll have on the seabed either. Uh, yeah. it, it, if we've learned anything, it's that ecosystems are fragile. Yeah. Um, and, and the more we mess with them and don't know about the effect that they have, the, the worse it is, really.
yeah just humans are pretty good at disrupting the balance aren't they and changing something and knock on effect so yeah yeah no that's it's a good point actually I, I didn't even think about the the logistics of even towing the stuff out to see and dumping it like yeah you have all that stuff and just takes away from the net neck benefit i suppose so um but anyway yeah so all in all there's so many uses for seaweed i my head hurts kind of trying to think of all the different things um um but anyway so the blue economy in scotland seaweed the seaweed industries obviously the work you're doing at the minute is trying to regenerate it and make it grow so what sort of things are happening in scotland at the the start that so we've, we've got quite a few different things happening um so we've got independent farmers are trying to set up farms now and see see how that goes uh it's interesting because everyone's got their own sort of engineering challenges and uh, biological challenges uh you know everyone has especially i i suppose economic challenges with this uh, it, it's really hard to make seaweed farming um economically viable right now uh, and i think a lot of people are aware of that um and, and you know i think it's really important to be um as knowledgeable as possible before we go into this uh, but on that respect from from that respect they're able to then share their experiences and the more knowledge that we have and share um the easier it is for every iteration because every aquaculture industry has has goes through this goes through peaks and troughs and um we're, we're no different especially because it's such a new industry um so yeah so we've got people farming we've got people doing processing and trying to figure out processing and that's its own challenge because you can't just use a, a seed or grain dryer because seaweed has its own composition you know it has alginates in it it's got sugars in it it's going to stick it's going to do things you wouldn't expect um as it dries obviously it's got 90 percent water uh you maybe want to retain 10 percent of the water so it's getting it to the right uh, water activity level so that it's food safe all these other things so we've got some processors trying to figure that out we've got some farmers trying to figure out the farming side um, and then we've got people doing the value add. So you've got the likes of Oceanium looking at different products that you can make out of seaweed um, and then trying to figure out which ones are, are financially viable. Um, and that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, is, is finding that route to market, something that is uh, going to drive the, the demand for seaweed. Because if we're supplying seaweed and there's no demand, then, then that's where we're going to come to a head. So it's chicken and egg at the moment. Do we need the demand or do we need the supply? And uh, yeah. Everyone needs to work together very closely then, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Collaboration. Which is what <laughs> I'm trying to do that. That's that's what the uh, SSIA is all about, right? We're uh, driving and fostering that collaboration and that unity and trying to, trying to create a kind of seaweed community. And if someone wanted to get into this industry and start a seaweed farm, what would they do and how easy is it? <laughs> Probably a lot harder than you think, to be honest. I mean, the best thing that you can do really is, is you know, go on a course or, or read up on it or just try and get as much information as possible. Um, that, that's why, you know, the Seaweed Academy was started in the first place and, um, and actually running it at Sam's, what I found was uh, the majority of people going on it weren't necessarily farmers, but people who wanted to perhaps participate in some part of the value chain. Um, and the the easier that you can 
you know, find out the value chain and find out what the bottlenecks are, the, the easier it'll be to, to open those up and, um, and really try and unlock the potential, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, so, so educate yourself is the very first thing. Um, and I would say get funding, make sure that you have enough funding because that's uh, always going to be an issue. Timeframes are never going to be what you expect them to be. Um, you have to start start your farm and then uh, you'll, there'll be pushbacks. Whoever your regulatory bodies are, um, they'll probably take a lot longer than you expect if you were going into the farming, of course. Um, and then, you know, then you need a good engineer. You need to do trials. You need to know that where you're putting your seaweed is a good spot for it to grow. Um, different species like different environments. They like different currents. You, you know, you want a place that's uh, sheltered enough, but also has enough current to, to move nutrients around and uh, not be affected by fresh water. So, you know, loads of loads of things to consider, a lot to put together and get your head around. Um, and then most of all is who are you going to sell it to? If you're growing or harvesting seaweed, where are you sending it to? Um, and then on the flip side, if you're then doing, you know, value add and processing, you're making your uh, products, great. Where are you going to get your seaweed from? Um, is it going to be local? Are you going to try and reduce the amount of carbon as possible? Because then you're probably going to have to pay more. Uh, or are you going to import it from um, from other countries where it's a lot cheaper, but the quality is probably not going to be as good and your carbon output is going to be higher? So there's a, all, the, all the things to consider, yeah. Yeah, a big balancing act. Um, you mentioned about the ideal conditions for growing seaweed. I imagine Scotland's pretty good for it with the locks, the numerous locks, the tides, and reasonably sheltered, depending on the direction of winds. Yeah, I think shelter, sheltering is more of a, an engineering challenge than anything else. The, the further out you are, um, the bigger an engineering task it's going to be because we do get some pretty rocky waters in the winter and and kelp which is what most people grow because the biomass is so much higher um is a winter crop which is great for you know industries like fishing that this is their off season so you can use the workforce or um even use some of the equipment but yeah the the seaweed does like um lots of nutrients so you need an area that has a lot of uh, currents and having it a bit further out is ideal for those growing conditions uh, but maybe not necessarily for your workforce uh, or for your for your mooring so Scotland is a great place for it we've got great cold waters you know kelp's like 10 degrees and lower any more than that and you're in a bit of a risky area um, with the warming waters as well and climate change this this area is going to start being driven further and further north, which is uh, a difficult balancing act as well. Um, and, and you also have such nutrient rich waters, you know, even the salmon industry uh, has lots of nitrogen outputs, which means that seaweed actually really, really likes it um, because it absorbs, you know, nitrogen, it absorbs phosphorus, it absorbs uh, potassium and, um, and everything that we really uh, need. And, and that's why it's such a great food product and, and such a great fertilizer. That's interesting about the, um, you mentioned about the fishing, the during the off season, uh, the kelp seasons during winter, during uh, the off season for fishermen. Um, the, is there collaboration between different aquaculture industries then, or is there potential for it? For example, I'm thinking of maybe oyster beds, oyster fishermen, mussels, you know, people growing this, can they like merge all this into like one 
enterprise or um would it have to be like just seaweed if that makes sense uh yeah well what what you're describing there is integrated multi-trophic aquaculture or IMTA. Ah, that's the word i was looking for that's it yeah our words <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah those imta systems that that was first coined by uh thierry chopin um who is a researcher uh over in the um, over in north america basically and the whole concept is that you can have uh, multiple forms of aquaculture next to each other um, and you know in an ideal setup world we'd have a, a fish farm in the middle of a seaweed farm next to a um, a mussel an oyster farm and then you'd have underneath your your filter feeders um so sorry those would be your filter feeders so absorbing the organic uh, nitrogen and particulate matter and um, that would be where it, what happens with your muscles and other bivalves and you've got your seaweed with all the inorganic matter it would be absorbing anything that's dissolved as well um, and then on the seabed you'd have things like cucumbers and urchins and uh, worms that, that would then uh, take up anything that's then fallen onto the floor so in this ideal world you know we'd have a really synergistic environment and, and higher growth rates all round. Uh, in practice, it's, it's obviously quite difficult to do that. Um, the biggest challenge, I would say, is the fact that if you have all of those things together, you need to make sure that everything's profitable. And at the moment, you know, fish is a lot more profitable than bivalves and, and bivalves are still more profitable than seaweed. So what you probably end up finding is that seaweed would fall to the wayside um, in preference for these other, for these other species. Um, but you know, if we if we can co-locate them and have them near to one another but separately managed, that's a potential solution for that. Um, and and actually, yeah, we'll find that uh, it's actually doing really good uh, all around. Yeah, I always wonder, you, the offshore energy industry as well. I always wonder if there's potential to get involved. Maybe it's completely far fetched, but all these structures going offshore if there's any way to get aquaculture involved in these sites but maybe that's completely uh, it's not as far much as you think there's a lot of interest there's a lot of interest from both sides i think um trials need to be done we need to figure out exactly how they interact because obviously um if you're looking at offshore wind they're not going to want any sort of hindrance to the structure hmm. you wouldn't want anything being blocked off um but again you know that's an ideal situation we we if if you can build a solid enough structure that can uh, stand out there it's already a normal catch zone so you're not upsetting anybody um mm. in the fishing sector by blocking it off yeah. uh with, with other activities so actually it's a win-win if we can make it happen but uh again needs to be economically viable if you're going out there and saying well i'm going to put seaweed farms here um but it's not going to make any money yeah what, what's the point yeah um the communities that are getting involved in this are, are, I'm thinking of the coastal communities around the UK and Ireland. Um, what do you th think this will play a big role in the future for these communities, this industry, um, in terms of employment? And uh, like, I'm thinking of maybe, well, for example, the seaweed industry used to be big and now it's, um, no, it's gone. Do you think it'll come back for these communities? 
I mean, there's potential, yeah. I, it definitely is something that a lot of coastal communities, it, I mean, it's really unfortunate because coastal communities are really struggling at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main reason, and I'm, I might be controversial here by saying this, I don't think I am. I think a lot of people will agree with me, but essentially tourism is killing these rural areas. Because mm-hmm. um, even if you do have jobs in these areas, the housing is not available and if it is it's far too expensive because everything's being bought up for airbnb and second homes um, driving the price up and making it unlivable so you do have jobs in these rural areas in on fish farms and fishing communities um, and the expectation a lot of time has to be for these industries that they provide their own housing which seems completely uh ridiculous so you're getting you know places like Ullapool, Ullapool, Fort William, um, they're just turning into shell towns and shell, uh, yeah, in the winter especially, you'll go up there and there's nobody there because, um, you know, the hospitality shuts down for the winter. You've only got a few locals still remaining there. Um, So I'd love to say, yeah, the seaweed industry is going to bring this back, but really it's a housing issue more than anything else. Um, And I think that's happening all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, we were down in, we were in Cornwall there for four weeks ago. There was a sailing event out in Cornwall, staying in an Airbnb. And um, I know there's issues down there. Um, and back home here, we have the north coast of Northern Ireland. If you go up in winter time, it's it's probably getting better in the sense that there's probably tourism all year round, but there's probably summers summers a peak period. And then we have Donegal on the west side as well, where you go up in winter and it's, um, yeah, you'd maybe get Donegal busy for one week over the 12th of July holidays here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, where it's not, if it's tourism, it has to be sustainable tourism. And is that sustainable tourism? I don't know. I don't, mm, no, exactly. Yeah. I think that's difficulty. I, I mean, even in Oban, the, the population of Oban in the summer is 27,000. Mm-hmm. In the winter, it's 8,000. Mm-hmm. There's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, and you see it. There's traffic. There's a, all these yeah. other things. Um, but, it, but it's a really, it's kind of a depressing place in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things. It is one of those things because it's driven by school holidays, so weather, you know, it's just, um, but yeah, it, ha- it has consequences for coastal communities at the end of the day mm-hmm. um so yeah it's um it's interesting the coastal communities are definitely i think especially the rural ones are getting it's it's tough so now, the other thing as well i suppose with, with that as well is that um the biggest question is what what is meaningful employment i think what what people are missing these days especially um gen z and and everything else you know where they're going what is what is defined as meaningful employment because a lot of the jobs that are going are in hospitality are in tourism and, and they're not considered meaningful employment so I see working on a seaweed farm might be but again uh, the pay is not going to be that much better than working in hospitality um, mm-hmm. and the work is going to be significantly harder mm-hmm. so even so it needs to be meaningful it needs to pay well um and, and those are challenges for any new sector at the moment mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and you know, cost of living crisis isn't really helping anything either. So it's it's hard. So you know, I, I equally even with with working in seaweed, I'm, I'm positive most of the time, but at, at times I really do feel quite 
um, quite down about it because there are so many external factors that are affecting um, where we are and what we can do uh, mm -hmm. across the whole country and across yeah, all countries, really. I think people in the environmental industry in general have that issue ups and downs, you know, it's just the nature of the work. But um, anyway, moving on, <laughs> something a bit more. Well, I was going to ask about um, comparing uh, if you look around the rest of the world, like maybe Asian, uh, the Americas, is there any lessons you can learn from other uh, blue economies that are maybe a bit more mature? Um, I don't know if that's right to say, but maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think the Americas are probably about the same state that we're in. Um, having talked with them, I think they're equally finding similar similar issues. But if, if there's anything that I've learned from looking at um, Asia, it's that actually collaborative, cooperative models are really, really useful, especially if we're looking at economies of scale, um, if we're looking at operational uh, risks as well. Um, I think, you know, this whole supply and demand issue can be resolved if we if we have a cohesive um, and cooperative way of looking at this uh, and really that's that's a, that that's the way to move forward in china you will see or at least in, you know in south korea uh, a lot of the seaweed that they grow ends up going straight to um, abalones so you've got kelp farms and then you've got abalone farms next to them and essentially you know 40 percent of that kelp is then immediately dropped um into the abalone cages uh for them to eat which is which is really interesting because you know it's a higher value product mm -hmm. sorry what are abalones are they fish no they're, they're, they're shellfish so they're little shellfish. you know like if you've ever seen in a fish tank the little shells that, that stick to the side oh um, right okay and so yeah that very popular food in, in yeah. asia not that popular here you know and yeah. now people do love seaweed snacks over here it, it's great but it, it is it's a species um called nori which is porphyra which is the same actually species as lava bread um and actually that just that's just a testament to how we eat things and how asians uh, process and eat things you know we we found this seaweed and we went what should we do with it let's boil it for hours <laughs> Yeah. and mix it with oats and butter and they found it and they said well let's flatten it and let's steam it and let's dry it out and and you know make it into this crispy uh delicious sheet um and, and the difference is wild you know you don't see anyone out there boiling seaweed and going mm, this is delicious but we we will eat the sheets of seaweed and we'll put it in sushi and everything else so sometimes it's just about the way that we approach mm -hmm. how we eat things and what we do with it um but, but it's definitely seen as a kind of Asian cosmopolitan idea of, of what we eat and, and mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily as integrated into our culture uh, as, as maybe should be. Yeah, we do like our processed foods here, don't we? It's mm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, it's a story of, of how we... Uh, how we incorporate things we could still process it and put it into foods if we want yeah, I mean yeah. you will see seaweed be you you probably consume seaweed every day without even realizing um you know you've got seaweed as uh basically as a stabilizer in so many foods if you're eating um cooked meats it's probably in that in toothpaste and beer um in all sorts of different project of products like uh soy milk and you know it's it's an emulsifier it's a stabilizer uh, and you know for those reasons it, it's great but again those are species of seaweed that you grow in 
uh, in Indonesia and in the Philippines. It's not, mm -hmm. not a UK based seaweed. Yeah. The, so I have, I think I have two more questions, Rihanna, okay. and then I'll let you go. <laughs> but okay. I, my mind has been blown. Um, I think most people listening to this, their mind will be blown with the amount of stuff going and happening in the seaweed industry. For anyone listening who just perhaps are, I suppose if you, they view themselves as a potential consumer like what would be i suppose just by starting to look at products and locally I, how would they be able to get involved and support the industry if they wanted to yeah i mean there are products around especially i would say in in whole food shops so if you're looking for, yeah at, um anything related to yeah health food shops sorry if you go in there you'll usually be able to find um Irish mosk or carrageenan uh you know that that's always been used as a thickening agent um to make jellies you can find agar that's seaweed uh you can also buy seaweed in seasonings and powders so if you look up uh mara seaweed who, who have now been taken over uh, seaweed enterprises or shore crisps um the shore actually started coming out with uh they've got pesto they've got crisps and they, they've also got some seaweed broths um, so that's a great way to, to consume it in small amounts that maybe are a bit more palatable to the Western diet. If you get the seaweed sachets from, from Mara, they're a little bit more kind of a seasoning product. Um, or even just go down to the beach. I'd recommend going to the beach, actually looking at the different seaweeds, trying them. There's no poisonous seaweed in the UK or in Ireland. So if you go around, you know, I would say don't eat too much because it's got high levels of iodine in it. and You don't want to give yourself hypothyroidism, but, you know, go have a taste and see what the different flavors are um and and you know cook it up dry it see what happens to it that that's how we discover food in the first place that's how we figure out what we like and what we don't like yeah experiment and yeah i'm glad we're not recommending any dangerous practice by yeah. anyone's gonna end up poisoned by seaweed that's good um always a positive um yeah no absolutely yeah i think um people will want i think even just out of curiosity, I think, and that's maybe that's how it'll start if people hear about it, try it, and then take it from there. So, um, so Rihanna, the rest for the outlook for yourself with the Scottish Scottish Seaweed Industry Association. Is there any big events planned, upcoming events, or anything you want to want to promote? Yeah, we've got the uh, conference, the Scottish Seaweed Industry Association Conference is coming back for the first time since 2020. So COVID break, uh, now we're finally um, coming back to Scotland. So it's going to be held in Oban from the 14th to the 16th of November, which is really exciting. Uh, it's all about best practices this year. So we're looking at, you know, what, what we need to consider when we're looking at health and safety, when we're looking at um, the effect on the marine environment uh what what does seaweed what can seaweed bring um you know regulatory considerations and and also we've got people coming from canada we've got people coming from norway uh to come and talk about it too so it's, it's just a really exciting space to actually share some information um, and, and network more than anything else i think an opportunity for um people in uk and nearby countries to come and actually uh have have chats and get to know each other in, in person which is, which is you know so exciting that we can actually do it again absolutely so it, it you can uh, 
you can register on the website is that the best place if, yeah know. yeah so go on the website we've got tickets on there um and, and check it out very good awesome well um rihanna it's been amazing chatting to you actually hearing what you do and the amount of potential and work going on in the industry i my head's actually a wee bit sore all these different thoughts were flying around my head when yeah know, and i was like oh but but there we are that's um i think that's what makes it exciting so um and i'm glad you're here to steer me and not go off on a tangent so uh, <laughs> that's uh, it's been a pleasure yeah I, I love you know i love talking about seaweed and sharing uh the information so um, I hope I've been able to bring at least a little bit of knowledge and intrigue and, and everything to you and also to your listeners. So. You absolutely have. Um, absolutely have. So thanks so much um, for coming on the Coastal Catch-Ups, Rihanna. And um, I'll chat to you soon, I'm sure. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for listening to Coastal Catch-Ups and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please remember to subscribe to our email newsletter, which you can do on the website at www.coastalcatchups.com. I'll see you at the next episode.